Once again, welcome back to the listener's commentary on the letter of 1 Peter. In this session, we're going to be looking at 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. But before we jump into that, just a reminder that the listener's commentary is a crowdfunded Bible teaching project made possible by the generosity of people just like you. And you can set up a monthly recurring donation uh, in partnership with World Family Mission that will go directly to me and support this work. Or if you'd like, you could sign up for the Study Hub. And that's a great way not only to get premium content for yourself, but also to support this ministry as well. And so the links to all of that are down in the notes below. So if you're feeling like uh, the Lord is leading you to support this ministry in some way, check out both the Study Hub or setting up a monthly donation through World Family Mission. All right, let's jump into 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. Now, the context of that is this. From, from 1 Peter 3, 13, all the way up through 4, 6, Peter has been addressing the subject of suffering for Christ. And he's going to pick up that same subject again in chapter 4, verse 12, and following immediately after the section we're looking at here. But in between, in 4, 7 through 11, the section we want to look at in this recording, Peter has just a short little paragraph with some general instructions for Christian living. One of the major themes of 1 Peter has been living in light of the coming outcome of all things. Like, we live with joy because of the living hope that we have. We're living in light of the salvation that's ready to be revealed at the last time. We live holy lives, Peter says, in view of the hope and the grace to be revealed to us when Jesus appears. We're mindful of the day of God's visitation. We know God is the one who's ready to judge the living and the dead. And that continues continues after this passage, like Peter mentions, just in the paragraphs that follow and the few paragraphs at the end of the letter, the glory to come, the victor's crown of glory, how God called us into his eternal glory, that Peter is uh, calling us to live a certain way in view of the coming outcome of all things that God has prepared for us. Well, here in chapter 4, verses 7 through 11, it begins with a mention of the end of all things, the outcome of all things. And the point is that Peter wants us to live a certain way now in view of the eternal future that is coming, even in the face of suffering. Live this way, Peter says, because you know the outcome of all things. And that's not just an individual thing, which is sort of, at least in my culture, our default assumption. We're individualistic and we tend to think it's, I need to, I need to live a certain sort of way. And that's true, but it's not exclusively that. It's also a corporate thing, which was more Peter's default assumption. In view of the pressure and hostility from without, the groups of Christians together must stay closely connected to each other and to God in their life together. And so what Peter is going to say here in verses 7 through 11 is going to have to do with their relationships with each other as much as anything else. So Peter begins verse 7 by saying, the end of all things is near. The end is that outcome, the goal, the climax. The Greek word is telos. It's the culmination or outcome of all things. And he says, that's near, or more literally, has come near. It's begun already in a certain sense with the coming of Jesus and the pouring out of the Spirit. So the beginning of the end is already here. That's why he can say it has come near. And so we're living 
in the final stage of God's purpose before the end of all things. And so the final day draws near. Um, Every morning we wake up, we're a day closer to the end of all things. And we should take comfort in this, that God will soon bring all things to its intended resolution, intended goal. Then, in view of that, Peter gives a series of instructions or commands, exhortations, for how we should live together as God's people in view of the fact that the end of all things is near. And the first thing he says is this, Therefore, in view of the fact that the end of all things is near, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Sound judgment is this idea of being sober-minded or level-headed. And then sober is literally sober, but also came to just be alert, vigilant. And so together, these two words emphasize the importance of being level-headed, clear-headed, and vigilant. Now, In my culture, we might say, you know, your head's in the game, right? You're focused, you're alert, you got your your head screwed on straight, your eyes are sharp, right? Interestingly, and importantly, we're supposed to be level-headed and clear-minded. Notice he says, unto prayer or for the purpose of prayer, literally actually for the prayers, meaning praying together as God's people, praying together on your own, that living in light of the end means keeping focused and clear-minded for the sake of praying regularly and often. And so we want to keep our, our head clear. We want to be alert and vigilant so that we can pray well. Next, he says in verse 8, Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. So also, in view of the outcome of all things, Christians need to be sure to love one another. Notice he says, above all, do this. That is of first importance, the highest priority. Love for our fellow Christians is the chief virtue consistently in Jesus' teaching and in the teaching of his apostles in the New Testament. Love is the highest priority, the mark of disciples of Jesus. Peter's already called us to this in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22. Uh, there and here he says that this love must be fervent or earnest or constant. One commentator, I have I. Howard Marshall frees this up as it should be at full stretch, like we're fully engaged and fully committed to loving one another because here's the reason that Peter gives, because he says, love covers a multitude of sins. This is a quote from Proverbs chapter 10, verse 12. And in the proverb, it seems like the idea of covering sins is the idea of not holding against people, but forgiving them and overlooking those sins and mistakes and faults. Not treating people as their sins might deserve, but being gracious and compassionate as the Lord has been to us. And this means that all the big and little things that Christians in our life do that irritate us or hurt us or wrong us, we treat them with genuine, fervent love. Instead of being standoffish or cold or distant or unkind or any such thing, uh, that we're going to overlook and cover over whatever sins, multitudes of sins, might sometimes threaten to damage the relationships between God's people in Christ. Then, 
He says, after instructing us to keep our love fervent for one another, he says, be hospitable to one another without complaint. Uh, hospitality was a deeply ingrained social uh, value in the Mediterranean world of Peter's day. Um, it's still pretty much that same way in the Middle East today. In fact, I have a friend who was born in Egypt, but moved to the U.S. when she was a very small girl, and she still deeply values hospitality. Somebody stops by her house, they're coming in. She's going to be offering food, she, right? Like it's just natural and normal within kind of the culture of her family that she grew up with who were deeply embedded in that Mediterranean, Middle Eastern sort of value of hospitality. And so what Peter is saying here is that we are to welcome each other and to do so without complaint. We welcome each other just as the Lord Jesus himself welcomed us. And hospitality was then in Peter's day, and it's still the same today. It's a very concrete sort of thing. You open up your home, you have people over, you share your food, you give them your time. That's what hospitality means. A New Testament scholar, Kenneth Birding, who actually lived as a missionary in the Middle East for a time, says that many Middle Eastern Christians today, as well as those from Peter's day, would see how many unhospitable people claim to be Christians in our generation, and they would probably ask, Birding says, are you even Christians? The idea that a Christian would never open his home, never share her food, never bring people into the warmth and grace of an in-Christ home would be unthinkable to a first century Christian. That's the way Birding puts it. There is something for us to listen to here, like be hospitable, open up your home and your life to people and do so without complaint. Uh, do so gladly. Uh, the word complaint means murmuring and grumbling. Like when you murmur, oh, I just can't believe these people just always stopping by. Oh, I can't believe I got to help these people out. Like murmuring and complaining and grumbling. That's the idea of the word. So be hospitable without complaint. And then the final instruction Peter gives to us here is uh, to use whatever abilities and opportunities uh, we have been given to do so in serving our fellow Christians. Peter puts it like this in verse 10. He says, as each one of you has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the multifaceted grace of God. So Peter calls us to be good stewards, that is good managers, to take responsibility for what has been entrusted to us and to use it the way God would call us to. And so he says, be good stewards of the grace of God. Uh, oftentimes, a steward in the ancient world was one who managed the estate on behalf of the owner. In other words, it refers to a high responsibility of making sure things are done the way the owner or the master intends. So if the owner or master has entrusted you, in Peter's case here in verse 10, with what this translation says is a special gift or literally a charisma, like it's from the word grace, like a grace gift. If you've been gifted with something by the grace of God, then use it, employ it for serving one another. That's how the master wants uh, the responsibility that he has entrusted to you uh, to be used, to use it not for your own gain or your own self, uh, but we would use it in a spirit of humility, since it's a gift of grace, to serve other people. Let's think for just a moment about this idea of a special gift. Sometimes we call these in 
our day and age, spiritual gifts. Um, like Paul, Peter here says that whatever we think of by that, this is some sort of ability or opportunity that is intended to be used under God for the sake of God's people, for the sake of the church. Well, one question then is, well, when would such a gift be received? Some scholars say, oh, clearly upon conversion, like when you became a Christian, God gives you some sort of spiritual gift. Some say, uh, no, it's really native abilities now set apart and consecrated, dedicated to the Lord for the Lord's purposes. And I'll be honest, I don't have a, a great answer to that. Um, like, is it conversion? Is it native abilities now dedicated to the Lord? Not sure. Maybe both. I don't really know. Here's what I, I'm pretty convinced of from reading all the text in the New Testament on spiritual gifts or what Peter calls just a charisma here, a special gift. I don't think having an answer to when it was given is really that important. The key thing that's emphasized here and in Paul's teachings on the subject, the key thing is using whatever skills and opportunities the Lord has given you or given me according to God's values and God's goals and God's purposes. And that's the thing that Peter focuses on here is if you have some sort of ability, some sort of gift, whenever it was received and however it was given, that doesn't really matter. And the New Testament authors don't really emphasize that. What they do emphasize is Use it for God's purposes. Use it for his sake. And what Peter says here is one of the things that means is use it to serve one another. And then Peter gives a couple examples in verse 11, uh, speaking and serving. He says in verse 11, whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the actual words of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies. In other words, you're to utilize these gifts and these abilities under God, on God's behalf, as God's servant, as God's steward, using it for God, according to his strength. Uh, using it as if you're, you're saying God's actual words. You're supposed to take it with that sort of seriousness because uh, this is something God has entrusted to you for his purposes and for his honor. And then he says, here's the goal of all of that, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Notice that uh, God is the one who gets the glory. Um, so there's two dimensions of using the abilities and opportunities we've been given. We use them for the sake of others, and we use them under God so that God gets the glory. It's never about ourself. It's never about what we get out of it. It's about serving others on behalf of God. So to just wrap up this short section, in between two sections, specifically talking about uh, the possibility of suffering for following Jesus, Peter pauses and basically says, in the midst of that, you, new family of God in Jesus, you need to live together this way. You need to live together hospitably. You need to live together with fervent love. You need to keep your head clear so that together and individually you can pray on behalf of God. You need to use your abilities and opportunities to serve one another for God's glory. And so 
oftentimes when there's pressure from the outside, it's really easy to start picking at each other on the inside. And Peter wants to make sure that doesn't happen. And so he immediately here in this context calls them and calls us to pay attention to our life together in the family of God. There's a way we should live together in view of the coming outcome of all things. And that's what Peter has called us to here in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 through 11.